Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. This is a takeover special and I'm pleased to say I'm going to be joined by Dr. Christian Coates, Ultrition. He is a Baker Institute Fellow for Middle East and a non-resident senior fellow at the Gulf International Forum. So in a word or two, he is a Middle East expert and he knows more about that region than you or I can ever possibly learn. He's got plenty of books out and in particular about the relations between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. He did write a book on the Gulf crisis which came out this time last year. And he's going to share his insight on the Newcastle United takeover, looking at all the little things that have come into play over the past 12 months, what it means and what it might mean going forward if the PIF managed to complete this deal for Newcastle United. Tune in for this one. It's a really good episode. Please remember to like and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from. Leave us a star rating and a review as well. Let's crack on with the episode. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. I hope you're well, Andrew Musgrove here. It's a pleasure to say I'm joined by Dr. Christian Coates, Ulstrician, and I'm really excited to get this episode underway and to find out a little bit more about Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Newcastle United Takeover, all the goings-on in that region. And there's no one better, really, to speak to than Dr. Christian because this is his field, this is his forte. Now, we've had this episode penciled in for about a week or so, but that was before... The weather hit Texas, that's where Dr. Christian's based, and it has been absolutely horrendous. If you thought we had a bad here up in the northeast, and I did have a pretty bad up here in Northumberland, Dr. Christian, his power lines are frozen, and he very nearly didn't make it onto the show. So thank you for having me. And Texas, I guess, is not used to minus 10 degrees and, and snow, and it seems the entire system just froze and seized up. So I'm in my office. We have power here. We haven't had power back at home for four days. So it's uh, nice to be with you in a warm space. I'm very grateful you've managed to make it. Can you, first of all, just explain to our listeners and our viewers just why you might be better placed than most to offer some analysis about the Saudi Arabian potential takeover of Newcastle United? Yeah, I've been working on the Gulf states for about 15 years now, first in the UK and since 2013 in the US. And I've done especially a lot of work on Qatar and on Saudi. And since 2017, I've been focusing a lot on the rift in the Gulf between Qatar and its uh, three Gulf neighbors, Saudi, UAE, and Bahrain, who together with Egypt joined forces in 2017 to really try and isolate Qatar. And eventually I wrote a book called Qatar and the Gulf Crisis, which came out about a year ago, February, 2020. And so I've been following all aspects of Gulf politics for quite some time. And I mean, these rifts go back quite a long time in many ways, back to the Arab Spring of 2011, kind of different policy responses. And it kind of was an extension of that. And so when the Newcastle takeover um, a bid happened in about a year ago, I suppose, it was all quickly subsumed into that wider geopolitical issue that... Uh, 
has really kind of carved out such a space in golf politics over the past four years. So the plan over the next half an hour or so is to go right back to the start and get Dr. Christian's analysis on this whole journey, which has really been a roller coaster for Newcastle United fans. But I want to start at the present day. Over the past few weeks and months, we've seen little bits happening in the region, and we've also obviously seen the change in a president in the United States, which, which is going to have an impact. But we've also seen little things happening, people being released from prison, agreements being signed. So I just want to get your view, Dr. Christian, on what that might mean for Newcastle United takeover. Yes, so one of the driving forces of a lot of the instability over the past four years was, I think, a sense in Saudi Arabia and in Abu Dhabi, with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi and Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi, that Donald Trump's presence in the White House gave them a sort of an opportunity to try and reshape the Gulf in their own interest as well, that they wouldn't face any real pushback from a White House that they believed would take their side, a White House under Trump that seemed to abandon all settled US interests and policy positions. And since Biden won the election, or since it became clear that he would win the election in mid-November, we've seen, especially in Saudi Arabia, a, a moderation of sorts, partly because Mohammed bin Salman realizes that the last four years have been pretty disastrous for his image around the world. Um, Yemen war has produced a backlash in the US and also in other parts of the world politically. The killing of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul in 2018 made Mohammed bin Salman effectively overnight almost a persona non grata in many Western countries, including the US and the UK, I think. The blockade of Qatar didn't produce any results. Mohammed bin Salman really got a reputation as being an impulsive, even reckless individual. And so there's a degree of damage limitation and reputation kind of management that they're trying to do, especially with Trump leaving office and Biden coming in. And so ending the rift with Qatar was one aspect of that. And we've also seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, several human rights issues being resolved partially in the sense that some of the uh, most prominent detainees, including Eugène Al-Hathlou, who was imprisoned in 2018 for wanting to drive, you know, she was released as well. So it's very much, I think, the Saudis trying to show the Biden administration that they've drawn a line under the past, that just as in the US, the past four years, we can try and draw a line under it and move forward. Um, whether it works with Biden is another issue, of course. Biden has made it quite clear that he doesn't want to deal with Mohammed bin Salman, that his, he, his administration considers the Saudi relationship to be in need of a, an overhaul. And so I think the Saudis are trying to make those those moves to try and show the Biden administration they're serious. Now, that may not may or may not work, but um, at least we have seen some moderation where before 2020, we didn't really see a moderation in Saudi policy. And I guess the agreement signed between Saudi Arabia and Qatar is the thing that Newcastle United fans are clinging on to with the most hope. The Al-Ula agreement signed on the 4th of January, effectively ending the Gulf crisis, is the thing that supporters are hoping might push this deal through in the end. Can you, with your expertise, just give us a bit of insight into that agreement and what it might mean going forward? Well, I think any dialing down of the tension would help. I mean, one of the issues with the takeover was the be-in, be-out queue issue, which was directly related to the, the row between Saudi and Qatar. 
in the sense that obviously one of the engines of the Premier League's growth over the past 29 years has been broadcasting rights. And when you begin to uh, pirate those rights as an entity, then clearly the Premier League is going to not necessarily take a view of that as positive. And so I think that was one issue that could be directly tied to the to the, uh, the rift in the Gulf. And so as part of the, uh, and we saw also, I think, the World Trade Organization last June issue a ruling that wasn't necessarily favorable for Saudi Arabia. And that came just as the takeover was um, at its height, in a sense, that the, the owner and director's test was being applied. And so it didn't help the situation that you had a an entity closely associated with the government of one of the parties trying to buy Newcastle, you know, accused of, um, of violating broadcasting rights in such a way. So the agreement that was signed hasn't been made public. We don't quite know what it is. There was a similar agreement in 2014 that ended the previous round of this rift in 2013. And that wasn't made public either. And when that was finally made public in 2017, it was leaked. It was very generic and vague in terms of commitments on all parties. So we don't know whether the agreement signed in January is any different. But we do believe from reporting that one of the aspects of the agreement is that the Qataris will withdraw some of their international legal claims for arbitration, which could include claims of the WTO or the International Court of Justice, for example, as well. So it hasn't been made public. We can't tell for sure. And I think until the Saudis allow BN back into Saudi Arabia to start broadcasting again, and there have been mixed signals, some people have said that they have and others said that they haven't. It's not entirely clear. So I guess it doesn't hurt the chances. It doesn't necessarily help them yet either. Because as you said, the PIF and the Saudi government, whether you can draw a distinction between them, that's another issue that has been a problem. And that isn't necessarily tied to the Qatar-Saudi rift. That's an issue for Saudi internal politics. Um, so that's a separate issue, I think, from the, the rift itself. Well, that was going to be my next question, because if certain sources say that was the Premier League's main obstacle to this, you know, they don't believe that the PIF and the Saudi government are separate. You know, you go onto the PIF's website and right at the top of the pyramid is the Crown Prince. You know, he spoke only a few weeks ago about the vision for the public investment fund and the kind of the impact that's going to have on the Saudi economy. Do you believe that the two are separate or is it very hard to prove that? Well, PIF was established in 1971 by royal decree, so by a decree from the king. And it's always been under a Saudi government authority. It was part of the Ministry of Finance until 2015. And then one of the first things that Mohammed bin Salman did when he became prominent in Saudi Arabia was that he transferred it. Well, he transferred authority for PIF to a committee that he heads in the Saudi government uh, called the Council of Economic and Development Affairs, which is like a super committee that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is, is chair of. And as you said, he's now chairman of the board of directors. Um, of the eight directors, I think six are members of the Saudi government, of, of the cabinet. And then one is the current governor, who was a close advisor to Mohammed bin Salman in 2015. And then the, the, the other one is part of the royal court, which is Mohammed bin Salman's sort of inner circle. So there isn't really any separation there. Um, you look at the PIF website, it's a government website. I mean, even Saudi Aramco, which is the national oil company that produces the oil that makes Saudi Arabia wealthy, even they don't have a, a government 
gov.sa website. So, I mean, to me, all the indications are that PIF is not separate. So I can understand why that may have been an issue. I'd also just note that every time Mohammed bin Salman has announced a big kind of economic project, he's always turned to PIF to sort of implement it. So turn it into reality, like this neon city on the Red Sea that he's trying to build. Or even last month, as you say, this new The Line initiative where they're going to try and build a sort of zero carbon city again on the Red Sea coast. I mean, it's always, he always turns to PIF to try and put it into practice. So maybe there's a test of separation. Could PIF do something that Mohammed Salman either wasn't involved with or didn't approve of? And just so far, they don't seem to have done that. They just seem to be so closely aligned. In fact, I'd go even further and say that PIF is basically the vehicle that Mohammed bin Salman is trying to use to, to try and reshape Saudi Arabia. So arguably, you could say it's one of the most important parts of the modern Saudi state that he's trying to, to sort of play with to get what he wants to transform Saudi. But of course, that's, uh, I guess that's an issue for the, for the Premier League to decide. Now, sources close to the consortium say they offered the Premier League the highest possible assurances believed to have come from the Royal Court of Saudi itself. But is there a question to ask just how separate that court is to the actual state? Well, I think the problem there is for anyone trying to make a case is that, especially under Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi has become so much more centralised. It's almost become a one-man state where Mohammed bin Salman makes a decision and no one else around him is able to push back. And we saw with, for example, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, in 2018, how even a decision that arguably should have been pushed back, people who should have around him should have said, look, do you think this will cause problems? It didn't because nobody wanted to say no to him. And so arguably, Saudi Arabia since 2017, since it became crown prince, has even less checks and balances within it, even less powerful people who are willing or able to stand up to anything the crown prince says or does to push back. And so not necessarily speaking about Newcastle or PIF, but just the, the broader direction of travel that I have seen in Saudi over the past four years is that Mohammed bin Salman is probably more in charge of the Saudi state than any previous king or crown prince or senior figure since the 1950s, since the founding king died in 1953. And I think that's going to be an issue again that will have to be addressed. And um, of course, People then say, well, what about Manchester City and Abu Dhabi United Group? And I mean, yes, you could argue there's a bit of a sleight of hand there because they were supposedly independent investment corporations set up by the brother of the Crown Prince. So, I mean, it could just be in degrees of separation, at least in those respects, to have something that at least is formally independent and not chaired by the person who effectively calls the shots. Um, politically, that might be an issue because obviously, with the Manchester City case, that was passed. I mean, it was they passed the onus and directors test, so it could be that that's something that they'll have to look at in terms of maybe creating a special purpose vehicle, not controlled by the Crown Prince, not chaired by him. That might be what's necessary, just given the Man City experience. The Premier League offered the consortium arbitration to get this matter dealt with once and for all, you know, and if the Premier League were proved wrong, fair enough if the weren't, it was felt that the Crown Prince would have to be put on the, the kind of director's sheet. Now that, to many, seems a very simple way of 
getting it done. Sign it, the deal's done. Why do you think the Crown Prince wouldn't have wanted to go that far and put his name down on any director's sheet? I don't know, because in every other respect, they're more than happy to call PIF the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which implies that being a sovereign fund, you're state-backed and state-linked. So to be honest, that's... I mean, as you say, the solution potentially could be quite a simple one. So why they haven't chosen to go down that route is is a mystery to me as well, because in every other respect, they're very happy to indicate that PIF is effectively... I think in Mohammed bin Salman's comments in January, actually, when he relaunched the, the new five-year plan for PIF, he said he called them the, the investment arm of the Saudi state. Well, that's exactly what they are. So in theory, that should be quite a, a simple thing to be willing to do. But for whatever reasons... That hasn't happened, and I don't know the reason why. So let's roll the clock back just over a year. And when you first heard about this potential deal that the Saudi Public Investment Fund wanted to form a consortium to buy Newcastle United with an 80% share, what was your initial reaction? Why did you think Newcastle United was on the agenda of this massive sovereign wealth fund? Well, initially I think I was sceptical because PIF is supposed to be tasked with assisting Saudi economic diversification, creating jobs for young Saudis in high tech, in finance, in sort of good, well-paid, well-qualified jobs that Saudis would want to take. And it wasn't clear how buying Newcastle or any other football club, not just Newcastle, would, would contribute to sort of job creation, sort of value creation back in Saudi. Could, could also be argued that given the... Uh, challenges Saudi Arabia has faced since 2017, that PIF had identified sport as a way to build soft power. I mean, everyone likes football. Clearly, Manchester City has shown how an area can be regenerated and you really build a global brand based around that. And so clearly, Newcastle, where it's um, you know, a one-club town, it's, it's a very passionate fan base, could be a way of building up or trying to rebuild Saudi soft power using sport, using football as that vehicle. So it could have been that in this case, the Newcastle takeover was motivated more by sort of brand management, sort of by kind of trying to rebuild the image of Saudi. So people think of Saudi as something other than just Yemen human rights kind of challenges and look at Saudi in a positive way. And, and they'll potentially look to Abu Dhabi with Man City uh, Qatar with the World Cup, with other sporting events they're associated with, as a way that actually brand management associated with sport does work. It is successful. You can really to, to you can reach a whole passionate fan base in ways that you couldn't simply do that if it was just geopolitical. So that could have been what the investment was about. And that, I suspect, was probably what I suspected it was going to be motivated more by when I first heard about it. Now then, of course, as time went by, I began to think, well, hang on a second. You have the BNB out queue. And a lot of what happened with the Qatar dispute, the Saudis were just trying to poke the Qataris, trying to, once it became clear towards the end of 2017 that the Saudis and Emiratis weren't going to get their way, that Qatar wasn't going to give in, and that the US government under Trump wasn't going to change sides, it began to look for different ways just to sort of score points. And I think in 2017, creating an organization called Be Out Q, 
to sort of parody be in probably seemed like a good way of trying to score points. And I suspect that nobody in 2017 in Saudi royal court or around them was thinking, well, what might be the consequences down the line if in 2020 we're going to buy a football club in the Premier League? So again, this sort of short-term thinking, we're going to just try and score points, has in this case had a kind of longer-term impact. And you mentioned there the kind of the battle between the two countries. With this agreement that was signed last month, and like you said, we don't know what's in it. It hasn't been made public. I suspect, though, the Newcastle United takeover was very far down the list, if at all on the list, when it came to things they need to settle on, things they need to uh, agree on, and, you know, uh, to provide a solution on many things. And I suppose in many ways, that just shows you how small Newcastle United and, and buying Newcastle United is for PIF and, and Saudi Arabia? Well, I mean, if you look at some of the investments Piff has made in Uber and in other other companies, I mean, they're worth just in terms of what they're worth on paper. It's obviously a lot more than Newcastle. So, I mean, I don't think it's... I mean, I think it's a different type of investment, like we just said. I mean, it's not the same. I mean, it can produce kind of maybe intangible benefits in terms of reputation and image and people thinking about Saudi in a different way. And Saudi Arabia under Mohammed Salman has identified sport as a an entertainment, sport and entertainment, as a big part of, um, of what they're trying to do and also trying to appeal domestically within Saudi Arabia to a young, a youthful population um, where many young Saudis finally see someone in power, effectively in power, who is young like they are, who looks like them, who sounds like them, who talks like them, whereas they've been ruled for, for generations by old men in their 80s and 90s. And so, I mean, this, I think, has other reasons going for it. But yes, I mean, in terms of the agreement signed last month, if the 2014 agreement is any guide, that was very vague. So, I mean, it probably wasn't just Newcastle that wasn't mentioned. It was probably, I don't think anything specific was necessarily mentioned, not just Newcastle in that respect. And a question from many people is why Newcastle United? Why have the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia set their sights on the Magpies, you know, a team up here on the northeast, and not a team successful in terms of success on the pitch, in terms of trophies and honours, when they could have gone to France, they could have gone to Germany, they could have gone to Spain and bought a team for probably a lot less money and spent a lot less money in turning them into a championship winning side. I was just wondering, when you're talking to people in the Middle East, for your research, for your books, for your reports. Is there any inkling on why the PAF chose Newcastle United? Well, I think also in this case, you have Amanda Staveley, and she was, I think, involved in some of the previous attempt to take over. So she was clearly a middle woman who had an interest in Newcastle before PIF and perhaps managed to bring PIF on board for the latest takeover that she was trying to be associated with. From PIF's point of view, they could have looked at Man City. I mean, think about Manchester City in 2007 or 2008. Pretty much in the same place as Newcastle is today in terms of where they are in the Premier League, kind of a big history with kind of a more disappointing recent past, uh, a fan base. Probably Newcastle is actually bigger than Manchester City's. And so I think Abu Dhabi has shown that it's possible with the level of resources you can put in to catapult a team like that into where they are now. And so taking a team, middle-ranking team like Newcastle, and making them potentially the best club in 
England or even in Europe, would certainly do wonders for the Saudi image if they were associated with such a success story. And so I think that's probably why. And as we said before, I mean, Newcastle is a one-club town. You don't share it with Manchester United. Um, we've seen with Manchester City how effectively the entire branding of the club is associated with different parts of Abu Dhabi. You have all the sponsors from Abu Dhabi, Etihad Airways. You have all the billboards around the, the stadium advertising, visit the UAE, visit this and visit that. So it's a kind of all-around concept. You have flights from Manchester to Abu Dhabi packed every week, at least before COVID. And so it could well be that Newcastle is a similar situation. And they've seen how successful Abu Dhabi has been with Manchester City, that this is almost a, a sleeping giant, to kind of use the cliche, that you can sort of awaken and then be associated with that. And then you get a sort of passionate fan base built around it. It's interesting you mentioned the Manchester City example there. We all know they've spent a heck of a lot of money within the community, made a real difference there. And the consortium that wants to buy Newcastle kind of taken a similar approach. The plans were really impressive. It was about putting the community at the centre of the club. There was talk of social housing and it was an investment not just for Newcastle United Football Club but the city and for the region. And clearly they'd spent a lot of money and time and effort and resources in putting this impressive plan together, spoken to a lot of people, you know, fleshed out the ideas. Do you think that's another reason why, although officially they pulled out last July, they're still keen to get this deal through? Or do you think because their pride is taken a bit of a hit by the sheer obstacles put in their way to get this deal completed, that that's maybe another reason why they want to stick around and make sure that in time they will be owners of Newcastle United? Well, as you say, I mean, there was a, an extremely comprehensive plan, which would have been a kind of redevelopment or regeneration of the entire sort of region in some ways, similar to what Manchester City have Abu Dhabi have done Man City. So, I mean, there was a lot of resources put into it. And I suspect that given that the takeover hasn't been, uh, I guess it's been withdrawn for now, but it hasn't been completely taken off the table. So I suspect that maybe part of groups at PIF perhaps might want to, wanted to go through, as you say, to avoid a, avoid a loss of face. I mean, it would certainly be embarrassing for the Saudi leadership if they were to be effectively told you're not welcome here. So, I mean, they probably would want to avoid that. And given that PIF's kind of mantra these days, since Mohammed Salman took it over in 2017, effectively, has been to be a global investor. You know, the sort of image of them being turned away in, in, a, in the UK, in a significant global economy, would be embarrassing, I think. So I think in that respect, they're, they're, they're probably hoping that they can find a way forward that satisfies all parties. So let's say that the deal doesn't go through and the takeover is off the table once and for all. What impact do you foresee that having on the relationship between the UK government and the Saudi Arabian state? Yes, uh, the government definitely would want it to go through, I think, because especially with Brexit, post-Brexit, you know, this whole slogan, Global Britain, you know, the, the government since 2016 has really identified the Gulf as a place where you can try to make Global Britain a reality not just a slogan. In fact, Theresa May went to the Gulf Cooperation Council's annual summit as the guest of honour in December 2016. So four months after becoming prime minister, so five months after Brexit, she was in the Gulf hoping that there would be a, a kind of Gulf-UK free trade agreement because it was seen as 
because Britain has long historical links with the Gulf. The, uh, the smaller Gulf states, not Saudi Arabia, but the smaller Gulf states were all British protected states until 1971. So if you go to the Gulf, you can use your British plugs. You don't have to kind of get the adapters because you know, we Brits put the put in the infrastructure. We had you know, the, the royal family. Britain has a royal family. The Gulf states have royal families. So there's a lot of commonality. And certainly Theresa May and Boris Johnson have both identified the Gulf as the source of investment. There's ways that you can actually build a global Britain. And so obviously with Saudi economy being by far the biggest in the Gulf and in the Middle East, you know, this is embarrassing for the government in, in that respect. So I suspect they'd want to see it result in some way just because they've identified Saudi and other Gulf states as you know, being critical post-Brexit partners for the UK. We'll get back to Dr. Chris in just a quick second, but it is a part of the show where I urge you, our valued listeners, to please subscribe to the podcast to whichever platform you're listening through, whether that be Apple, Spotify, your Alexa, wherever, just hit that subscribe button, and it means the moment we upload an episode, it comes straight to your device really simple really easy and if you have the ability to leave a rating and review please do that as well it just means the episodes can get that bit further to a wider audience which is always good it opens up that Newcastle United family doesn't it and on that why not share our podcast with your friends and family who support Newcastle bring them into the world of the everything is black and white podcast on that roller coaster ride the ups and downs of Newcastle United We'll now get back to Christian. It's been a really interesting episode so far and there's plenty more to come. And I mean, obviously, if you're yourself an expert in the Middle East, you've had lots of questions. I know you've been in many publications answering questions on football and your cast United. What, what has that been like for you and people like myself coming to you and trying to get a bit more analysis on the situation? Well, it's been interesting. I mean, to some extent, it brings together my two passions, football and the golf. So, I mean, in that respect, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, we all can see the direction of travel that Premier League is going, or at least the teams in the Premier League are going in, where you have worldwide owners. And so, I mean, if you think some of the previous owners of teams like Taksin Shinawatra at Manchester City before Abu Dhabi moved in, you know, it could just be that where do you draw the line? I mean, how come he was, you know, in a sense, able to sort of be passed as a fit and proper person. I think it was in those days that test. And so, I mean, we can all see the globalization of sport, the way it's sort of become an international commodity almost, where, you know, so again, it's very different from, say, 30, 40 years ago, where you have local ownership, even Sir John Hall being a local businessman. You know, I mean, it's very different from that. But again, this is, I guess, the 21st century. It's part of the global pattern now. And Newcastle, clearly, by its history, by its fan base, by it's got a lot going for it. And so in that respect, you can see why it would be of interest. Do you think the PIF, Amanda Stavely, and, and the rest of the consortium were kind of caught out by events? Now, we, we know any time, you know, the Saudi Arabian government or businesses is mentioned in buying invest, or investing in a company, the human rights record will always get brought up understandably, and there will be critics, and we've seen that. But with Newcastle United... Um, it, it did seem to be more. There was critics from every you know corner coming out. Do you think they were caught out by the sheer amount of publicity that that came upon this deal? I think maybe they were caught out by not thinking about the impact of be out Q and be in to some extent by not thinking that would be an issue if they did think that. 
or by not necessarily foreseeing the PIF in the Saudi state would be an issue. I'm not sure if they thought, if they've necessarily foresaw that. I mean, what I would say about the human rights issue, I mean, that's not been a, I mean, sounds awful to say this, but human rights were not an issue uh, at the heart of the takeover. But if you think that maybe one of the ambitions was to brand Saudi through Newcastle, the way that suddenly a lot of Saudi bots, for what, want of a better word, suddenly embraced Newcastle and started attacking critics on online, on Twitter and other platforms, it did seem that this seemed to be more than just about economic and political policy. And it did seem that armies of sort of cheerleaders who may or may not have been real people in Saudi Arabia were sort of unleashed. And we'd seen that in a way that we'd seen the same sort of thing happening when they were unleashed against Qatar in 2017, for example, or unleashed against some of the human rights uh, detainees in 2018 and 2019. So that just made a lot of people a bit uneasy that there was some hidden figure in Riyadh, potentially Saudi al-Qatani, the figure who sort of has been implicated in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who really controlled all these sort of cyber armies online. And they seem to be doing the same thing with Newcastle, sort of weaponizing almost. Again, part of this sort of weaponizing of information or of sort of online conversation. And so that just seems to make a lot of people perhaps uneasy as well. And I think that, was, that, that, again, was something that wasn't necessarily foreseen. It probably couldn't have been foreseen because it had never happened before in that way. So I think the consortium perhaps didn't think through some of the issues that might be linked with the takeover in 2020, which at least some of them, because of the agreement in January this year with Qatar, may now be off the table in the sense that BRQ might be less of an issue now than it was then. And this sort of cyber sort of offensives, the sort of weaponization of conversations online, that seems to have died down as well, because I think it was part and parcel of this sort of intra-gulf spat that we saw from the very beginning, this sort of information warfare kind of going on in parallel. So at least some of those issues may now have been to some extent resolved. And there's various claims that Mike Ashley wants this deal to go through, not just because, you know, the, clearly the group have got the money, but also because he's trying to create a link into Saudi Arabia with his business. What do you make of those claims? Well, I mean, if I have no idea exactly what, you know, whether he does or doesn't want to do that. But I mean, if I was a, a business figure, I know Saudi Vision 2030 is moving ahead, albeit a bit more slowly due to COVID. But in, in the sense that Mohammed Salman does have ambitious plans to transform the economy, if you're a business figure with an international chain of businesses, you'd want to be in there kind of getting, getting, getting involved. And so I can see, I can see for someone, you know, that this might be a way in. If you're in that capacity of business class, then clearly you might want, want that to happen. And what do you think happens next? What do you think that there is a way that the PIF can persuade the Premier League that they are separate to the Crown Prince and this deal can go through? I mean, all the eyes are on this arbitration and we don't know the exact details of the arbitration that, uh, the QC, Nick DeMarco, was leading on behalf of Mike Ashley and Newcastle United, but there's a fair assumption that it's, it's going to have to do with something with that separate entity question. Mm. Do you believe that that can be proved in the favour of PIF and 
what Newcastle United fans would like to see? Um, my view, I suspect that there is no separation between PAF and the Saudi state. And if that's the case, and if that's what is found, and I don't know, but if that is the case, then they'll have to find a way of moving forward with on that basis. Now, whether that means putting the Saudi state as the owner and listing Mohammed bin Salman as the as a director, I don't know. In my view, there isn't really a separation you can draw. And if, the, if, that, if that's the case, then you then have a basis on which to proceed. You can then decide, okay, do you then reconstruct a consortium to at least make it nominally independent, create a sort of independent vehicle like with Manchester City, with the Abu Dhabi United Group, which again is owned by the brother of the Crown Prince. So it's clearly not completely independent. And everything that has happened in Man City since 2008 has really been about branding Abu Dhabi. So it's a sort of, it's almost achieving the same end with a different means. So if the, if it's found that there isn't a separation, just then think, okay, well, we have to find a different way of achieving achieving the objective, whether that's by the Saudi state or by another sort of nominally independent uh, group. Well, there we have it. Dr. Christian, I do appreciate you sparing the time to pop onto the Everything is Black and White podcast. And if you want to read Dr. Christian's book called Guitar and the Gulf Crisis, you can find it at pretty much every good bookstore. I've always wanted to say that. Dr. Christian, I hope that the weather continues to improve over in Texas and you have no more freezing of power lines. Once again, thank you very much for joining us on the Everything is Black and White podcast. <laughs>